please turn with me in your Bibles to Ephesians 5, if you're not already there. I said to a couple men this morning, there was once a, a cartoon that showed a, a pastor in a pulpit, and he had an army helmet on, an army gear, and sandbags around the pulpit, and barbed wire, and the caption at the bottom was, today I'm preaching on women and head coverings. <laughs> I feel a little bit similar because, as God's providence would have it, I'm preaching on the submission of wives to their husband this morning. <laughs> and uh, this is obviously a difficult and controversial topic in our day, but nevertheless, it is God's truth, and I trust that you all will receive it as such, and that uh, I know that there are women even currently doing studies on these things in our church, so I'm thankful. But this really will serve as a reminder um, this week and the next time I preach, we'll be looking at the duties of wives and husbands. And so don't worry, the, the husbands will go through the ringer as well. But uh, these are reminders that we need of the duties of husbands and wives to each other. Marriage is such an important and instrumental institution God has given in this world, in society, it is of utmost importance for the world in which we live and for healthy churches and even for God's mission that husbands and wives would be living together in harmony according to God's word. Especially today in a culture when there is nothing but confusion and deception on these issues of marriage and gender. And... Uh, if you're like me, you need reminders. I said in my phone, often whenever there's an event coming up, I put a reminder in the calendar and I, I get it to remind me not, not only you know an hour before the event, but a day before and 10 minutes before as well. Um, and we need reminders in spiritual duties as well. Because even though we might know these things, we might get sloppy with them after a time or, or forget about them. We need to renew our minds in God's word especially in this very important issue of marriage. Now, these sermons will be mainly aimed at married couples or those soon to be married, but that doesn't mean that there's not application to others. So if you are a kid this morning, if you're a teenager maybe, young man, young woman, there's also application here because you can be learning about these things and putting these kinds of principles into practice even in your lives today. Young women can learn about submission now, what it is to be a suitable helper. Young men can learn what it is to lead with love and care and sacrifice even now. Your aim as a young person should be to become someone who, as uh, Elder Brent has said, someone who is wifeable or husbandable, right? And so you can learn about these things even now. You also need to learn what a worthy partner is going to look like when you come to that time. Now, if you're single here for the time being, or maybe you're even likely to be single for the rest of your days, there can also be application here. And you need to know that singleness is in no way an inferior calling. Our Lord Jesus, the Apostle Paul, such were single men, and they did much for Christ, or Jesus was Christ, sorry, but uh, Paul did much for Christ. But even knowing about this subject 
You can then help other people in the church who are married. You can pray for them, that they would be faithful to their duties. And you can also encourage them in those duties as well. So keep those things in mind if you're in one of those two groups as we go into this subject. Now moving into this, our first point will be a wife's submission in verses 22 to 24. So we'll be mostly constricting ourselves to those verses this morning. Next week, I want to look at the passage on husbands, but there will be at the end of this sermon some exhortations to husbands as well. So you're not off the hook this morning. All right. So let's look at this. Here, this section, we have to understand also in its context. The context surrounding this verse obviously begins in the beginning of the book of Ephesians. And in Ephesians chapter 1 to 3, Paul gives us a panoramic view of salvation from beginning to end. He blesses our God and Father in Jesus Christ who has chosen us before the foundation of the world. Christ who has come into this world to redeem us by his blood. That we've received adoption as sons and been sealed by his spirit. The spirit bringing about repentance and faith in Christ. That we've come to him and obtained an inheritance in him. Paul goes on to talk about how we were dead in trespasses and sins. We were following the course of this world, following our flesh, destined for damnation. And yet God then in his grace and his rich mercy made us alive together in Christ. By grace we've been saved through faith, not by our own works. We've been entered into then this people of God that has existed even even before the time when the Gentiles were grafted in made into one new man, this glorious church. And Paul prays that they would just understand something of these spiritual realities, to have a knowledge of God and a knowledge of the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge. Then from chapter 4 onwards, he begins giving practical commands for life in the church, that we would be united by our, our gifts and graces using them all to grow ourselves up into maturity in Christ. He tells us that as Christians, we're no longer to live according to the old ways, the old self, but rather we are to put on the new self, which is being made new after the image of Christ. He continues with all these practical commands until we get to verse 21 of chapter 5, where he says, submitting to one another out of reverence, for Christ, which we can take as a general command for all Christians. We are all to have a submissive attitude to one another, a loving, humble, servant mindset like Philippians 2 talks about as we serve each other in the church out of reverence for Christ, out of the fear of the Lord that we have, respecting Christ our Lord, serving one another. But that verse then, verse 21, also acts as an introduction to the rest of this passage in chapter 5 and going on into chapter 6, verse 9. Paul singles out three groups of people that need to be mindful of submission. And so verse 22, he says, Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. In chapter 6, verse 1, he says, Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. In Chapter 6, verse 5, he'll say, Bond servants, obey your earthly masters 
with fear and trembling, with a sincere heart. These are all different areas in which we see submission. Submission is in order in these different relationships within society. Of course, there are differences between these relationships, but the principle there remains the same. Now, as we look at this, what does Paul mean by submission here? In verse 21 and verse 22, well, to submit, well, submission means to submit to the orders or directives of someone. It means a kind of voluntary yielding to someone or something. The basic idea of this word here, hupotasso, is to come under the order or authority of someone else in your proper place. If you think about other things in society, about perhaps the military, there's a, there's a ranking system. There are people with different insignia identifying their ranks and orders. And there's a pattern of submission, submission then to your commanding officer or even in a, in a kitchen, in a restaurant. There's going to be a, an order there, the manager and the, the chef, the sous chef, all, all the way down to the line cook and the prep cook. This doesn't mean that they're inferior people to one another, but there is an order. And that order is necessary all over society. It is necessary for its harmonious functioning. Think if everyone was the foreman on a job site, how chaotic that would be right? So submission in society is necessary. We'll also see here that submission implies a kind of obedience. Again, in chapter 6, verse 1, children, obey your parents in the Lord. And verse 5, bondservants, obey your earthly masters. If we were to look to a, a parallel principle as the apostles apply submission to the governing authorities, in Romans 13.1, Paul commands us to be submissive to those authorities. As well as in 1 Peter 2.13, we see the same thing. And Titus 3.1 talks about the governing authorities as well and talks about our obedience to them. So submission entails, on some level, obedience. Submission also, as we'll see, entails respect. That is, honoring those above us for their position of authority. We're to give due honor and respect. Actually, the word that Paul will use in verse 33, see that she respects her husband, is the same word used in verse 21, submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. That word elsewhere can be translated fear. That's, of course, not what we mean in this context. It's more of a respect, right? But that's what submission is, falling under that, that kind of order, being in your proper position, understanding your need for respect for those who are in authority. Now, the apostles teach us this principle, like I've said, in a number of different relationships in society, citizens to state, wife to husband, children to parents, slave to master, husbands to Christ, church members to church leaders, Christians to one another. We are all then commanded to have this submissive attitude as believers in Christ. Now, as we get into this, obviously, this is a controversial topic, isn't it? 
probably all of us feel a bit of a, a rise in ourselves. And why is that? Well, first of all, for one thing, we all have an inner rebel in our hearts that rises up when we come to the topic of submission to authority, don't we? It's human nature to kick against the goads of authority. John Calvin even says here, nothing is more contrary to the human spirit than to submit to others. Isn't that true? This is our fallen state. Since we've rebelled against God, we also rebel against all truth and order. That's, that's broken, sinful human nature. And perhaps especially in our generation, this is an issue. Because we have the influence of modern gender ideology and radical feminism that seeks the dismantling of all distinction between male and female and differing roles in marriage, seeking to make all people equal, but with no biblical bearing and no standard of truth whatsoever, we've been plunged into a slew of subjectivity on these issues. The philosophy of our day is expressive individualism, which says, I am whoever I feel I want to be, and I can and should express that however I want. So then it becomes an offensive when we say, well, you are a male, or you are a female, or you, you as a husband or wife ought to do this or that, right? It runs against the grain of our culture. But we as Christians believe the Bible is God's word. And we know and have experienced, tasted, that it is good and it is profitable. And so we take these commands and apply them to our lives. But given its controversial nature, we have to be careful in these days how we phrase these things so that people know what we mean. As we go into this subject and you're listening to what I say, Make sure that you don't come out with the idea that we mean women are inferior to men. That is not at all what the Bible is saying. We believe that men and women are made equally in the image of God and have equal standing as Christian believers, an equal standing in Christ Jesus. Here there is no male or female. That doesn't mean there are no distinctions between male and female but we're all one in Christ. Secondly, we don't mean an unqualified submission that would endanger women. That must be said, and we'll talk more about that. Thirdly, what we do mean is that husbands and wives have different characteristics and differing roles in marriage, the church, and society. If you want to put a label on the camp of teaching, we hold to at our church with regard to gender and marriage, it would be complementarianism rather than egalitarianism. We believe that men and women are equal in regard to value, dignity, rights, faith, made in the image of God. But we also believe men and women have distinct and complementary characteristics and roles that combine for a beautiful harmony. That's complementarianism. Now let's, with that said, go into the text itself. Verse 22. We see the command of submission here. Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. Notice here, 
Wives are not commanded to submit to all men or all husbands, but particularly to their own husbands. And so wives in this congregation, you have to know that God has given you your very own husband. You can think of him right now or look over at him, pinch him. That is the man God is telling you to submit to in this marriage relationship. You are to yield to him, yield joyfully to his authority. Come under him in a submissive and obedient, respectful attitude. Here Paul also adds here, as to the Lord, which could mean a number of things, but at least it means that just as you submit to Christ as a believing woman, you are to submit to your husband. Of course, that doesn't mean you offer the same level of submission to your husband that you submit to Christ. He is King of Kings, Lord of Lords. Your total allegiance is to him, but you are to offer the same kind of submission to your husband as to the Lord. Now jump down for a second to verse 33 where Paul will summarize his teaching here. He says, however, let each one of you love his wife as himself and let the wife see that she respects her husband. So there's that word respect, right? And if we're to look up that word even in in English dictionary, it means a high or special regard and esteem. That is what you are to have for your husband. You respect him as a person made in the image of God. As a Christian, if he is a believer. And also you respect him for the position he has as the head of your household. Just as we ought to respect politicians. Because there is an inherent honor bestowed upon their authoritative office. And so we call them honorable so and so and whatnot. A wife is to honor, esteem and respect her husband in thought, word and deed. In verse 23, then we see the reason for submission. The reason for submission. It says here, for the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its savior. So why ought you to submit to your husband? Paul gives us this reason because God has made the husband the head of his wife. We see this in other places in scripture as well. If you turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 11. Chapter 11 and verse 3. It says, but I want you to understand that the head of every man is Christ. The head of a wife is her husband. And the head of Christ is God. And then you look down at verse 8. He gives some of the reasoning for that. For man was not made from woman, but woman from man. Neither was man created for woman, but woman for man. And this, of course, launches us back to the the very beginning in the book of Genesis. In Genesis chapter 2, we know that God made male and female in his image from chapter 1. But then it gets down to the ground level in chapter 2. And we see that God had created the man. And he put him in the garden of Eden to work it and keep it. But then he made the woman as a helper fit for him. It says in Genesis 2 verse 18. Then the Lord God said, it is not good that the man should be alone. 
I know that when my wife leaves me for a couple weeks, it is not good for me to be alone too long. God says, I will make him a helper fit for him. Now out of the ground, the Lord God had formed every beast of the field and every bird of the heavens and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. And whatever the man called every living creature, that was its name. The man gave names to all livestock and to the birds of the heavens and to every beast of the field. But for Adam, there was not found a helper fit for him. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man. And while he slept, took one of his ribs and closed up its place with flesh. And the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into a woman and brought her to the man. Then the man said, this at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. And so this has roots in the very creation that, that God made the woman from man and for man. Adam was made first as the head in the relationship. And that language of of the head points to this distinct role in marriage and also in the church. As we see in 1 Timothy 2 that elders are supposed to be qualified men. And the word head there implies at least two things. There is an authority in headship. That implies a position above, you know, as our head is at the top of our body. There, there is a, a position there. Not that he is superior, again, in personhood, but it does imply a higher rank of sorts or position of sorts. It implies that he leads and guides and directs. The whole body get it, gets its marching orders from the head. Now, that doesn't always mean the man is the brains of the operation. Um, I think, in my case at least, that does not hold true. But nevertheless... He is the leader, the head, the authority in the relationship. The man wears the pants, if you want to use that cliche, right? So headship also, though, entails responsibility. We struggle with authority today because often we think of this idea of headship only in terms of authority. But with authority comes responsibility, a, a great responsibility. So God gave Adam the responsibility to work and keep the garden, to provide and protect in that environment. God looked to Adam for the answer after the couple sinned against him. In Genesis 3, 9, he called to the man. It was Adam's responsibility to tell God what had happened. God gives husbands, as we see Throughout the rest of scripture, the responsibility to provide for their families, to protect their families, and to lead their families. And that is a weighty responsibility. And properly accepted, it means you do everything for the good of your wife. So this is the reason for submission. God has set up this good order in the family. By his sovereign and good choice, he has made the man in a marriage the head with authority and responsibility. 
and a society, again, without this order, is chaos. It is for our good that we have parents and civil governments and managers and so on. The marriage, likewise, needs order. And so it is for the wife's good that she submits to this headship as a suitable helper. Now, Paul also then, in verse 23, gives us the analogy of submission. He gives us something to compare this to. And so he says, for the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its savior. We see this metaphor all over scripture that Christ is the head of his, his body, the church. We are all different, different limbs and we have different gifts and functions in the church. But Christ is the head, the authority, the Lord over us. And he leads us with, with love. We see that the church is to yield submission to Christ. Every believer follows the Lord Jesus as Lord and Savior. Now what we see here, as even we go on in verse 32, Paul says this mystery is profound, and I'm saying that it refers to Christ and the church. Marriage is something that is not eternal. It's given to us in this life for several purposes. But one of those purposes is to be a practical image to us of God's eternal relationship with his people. Christ's relationship to the church. And so we can look at Christ's relationship to the church and understand something about marriage. Christ is the authority of the church. And he takes all the responsibility to lovingly lead her for her ultimate good. He provides for her, protects her, nourishes and cherishes her, loves her even to the end and dies for her. He is himself its savior, its deliverer, its defender, much like a husband then who is called to protect his wife, to lay his life down for her in sacrificial service. Christ is the savior of the church. And the church loves and follows Christ, yields to him in a complete obedience, striving to fulfill his goals, honoring him and respecting him. What a glorious relationship Christ has with us, his church. What a beautiful and mutually satisfying relationship that is. We have a loving and strong bridegroom in Christ, and he gets a holy bride that glorifies him in the church. Christ has engaged himself to the church by his blood, and we look forward to the day of the marriage supper of the Lamb when he returns. Just a couple passages to gaze upon this for a moment. We see this in Revelation 19. Revelation chapter 19, verses 6 to 9. This I take to be the, the end of days when Christ returns. It says, Then I heard what seemed to be the voice of a great multitude, like the roar of many waters and like the sound of mighty peals of thunder, crying out, Hallelujah, for the Lord our God, the Almighty reigns. Let us rejoice and exult and give him the glory, for the marriage of the Lamb has come, and his bride has made herself ready. It was granted her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure, for the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints. 
And the angel said to me, write this, blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. And he said to me, these are the true words of God. In Second uh, Corinthians chapter 11, verse 2, we also see this metaphor for Christ in the church. Second Corinthians 11 and verse 2. Paul says to the Corinthian church, For I feel a divine jealousy for you, since I betrothed you to one husband to present you as a pure virgin to Christ. But I am afraid that as the serpent deceived Eve by his cunning, your thoughts will be led astray from a sincere and pure devotion to Christ. So we see something of the relationship between Christ and the church reflected in this beautiful institution God has made called marriage. And so that becomes a pattern for husbands and wives. Wives particularly here in their submission. Verse 24 gives us something of the extent of this submission. It says, now as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. So again, wives are to submit to their husbands as The church submits to Christ. And that is a total submission. Paul uses the term here, in all, or in all things, in everything. And so as much as possible, wives are to submit in every area, in every instance, to their husbands. Colossians 3.22 gives a similar word. Uh, with regard to bond servants and masters. He says, bond servants obey in everything those who are your earthly masters. And if we think of it in other areas of life, don't we want our children as parents to be submissive in everything, right? If they're out of line in, in anything, that is an unsubmissive attitude. Uh, workers must be submissive to their bosses or managers in everything. Our submission to our civil authorities must be in everything. If, if we're not committed to submission in everything, then we don't really have a submissive attitude. So I can say that I don't like the maximum speed limit on a certain street, but I should still submit to it because I am under the authority of local police and government. And wives, you may not always like the direction your husband is going. But if after conversing about it, he still leads you that way, you ought to submit. This is the principle of submission in everything. Now, even though Paul says in everything here, we do actually have to give some exceptions. (laughs) Because even as we look at, say, our submission to civil governments, we know that there are times where we have exceptions to that. At a certain point, you must obey God rather than men. If the civil government tells us to close down the church, if they tell us not to preach the gospel, if they tell us not to preach biblical morality, we say, no, I'm sorry, I have a higher authority. The Lord of Lords, the King of Kings. There are limits to submission in every area. Even children could properly say to their parents, if their parents want them to sin, no, I'm, I'm not going to do that. I believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. 
And so there are exceptions here when it comes to a wife's submission. First of all, when he is sinning or leading you to sin. You are not called to submit to sin. That is not to say you are not to submit to a sinful husband in general, just as we are to submit to even an unjust government in general. The fact that they are unjust doesn't give us the right to disobey them in every way. No, we still submit. Same thing with wives to their husbands, especially this may be the case if your husband is an unbeliever. You must still submit to him, even though he's not being guided and led by Jesus Christ. But if he asks you to sin or to neglect your obedience to God, that is when you say, I must obey God rather than men. As Acts 5.29 says, you ought to rightly refuse in that time. For instance, if your husband tells you to stop going to church or to stop praying or reading the Bible or tells you to fudge the numbers on your taxes, you can't do those things. You are not to submit to sin. Rather, you submit to Christ and his word. The second exception here is that you are not called to submit to abuse. If a woman is ever threatened with danger or about to be harmed or is being harmed, she has the right and responsibility to flee that danger. And others around her have the responsibility to try and get her out of that danger. Or if her children are in danger, she should get her children to safety. God does not call us to submit to physical violence. We have the right to flee. Jesus says, pray for those who abuse you. Not stay with those who abuse you. Luke 6, 28. He told his disciples to flee when they encountered persecution from one city to the next in Matthew 10, 23. And we should always do what we can to help women and children or anyone in that kind of position to be safe from harm until the danger has passed. Psalm 82, 4 says, rescue the weak and the needy. Deliver them from the hand of of the wicked. So those are some exceptions. But otherwise, when it comes to mere preferences or opinions, wives ought to submit to their husbands in everything. Now, I wanted to kind of press this down more practically, see some areas. How can you as a wife, if you are a wife this morning, um, show submission and respect to your husband as a suitable helper to him? And I've gleaned some of these ideas from Martha Peace's book, The Excellent Wife. That has some, some great ideas there. Not saying I agree with 100% of that book, because I think uh, some of you ladies have been finding as you go through that, there might be minor tweaks there that you would have as you're reading. But she does have some great ideas. And so first of all, a way to submit is to truly help your husband. Help him. Whatever work he has, Whatever goals he wants to accomplish, help him in that. Help him to more effectively and easily do those things. So for most wives, this will mean, at the very least, keeping the home, taking care of the kids during the day, so that he can go to work and provide for you, as is his responsibility. This may mean coming alongside him in his ministries, helping to him to accomplish that. It means always being with him as that faithful friend who has sweet counsel with him, 
to give him your wisdom and your good counsel, the wisdom you've received from God's word. You are his chief advisor. We read of in the book of Proverbs how sweet that counsel is between close friends and even faithful are the wounds of a friend. Profuse are the kisses of an enemy. A wise man will like you to help him by even rebuking him biblically. Proverbs 27.9 says, Oil and perfume make the heart glad and the sweetness of a friend comes from his earnest counsel. Wives and husbands are the deepest and closest friends, aren't they? Helping him means praying for him. We can always help each other by prayer, as 2 Corinthians 1.11 says. And even thinking about 1 Timothy 2.1-2, where it says we're to pray for all those who are in high positions. Well, your husband is in a certain high position. He is an authority, and so you ought to pray for him that he would lead with wisdom and love and righteousness, knowing that he is ultimately a weak sinner who needs God's grace and strength to be the Christ-like head that God wants him to be. And certainly, you should try never to hinder him. You should want to see him excel to his true potential. Maybe your husband has particular gifts. Help him to fan those into flame. Maybe he's really good at the work he does. Help him succeed in that. Help him when he's weak. Give him spiritual counsel when he's struggling or discouraged or sinning. And he knows that you're a fellow saint. We are like fellow pilgrims walking as sojourners through this earth on our way to heaven. And we help each other on this journey. That's one of the very purposes of marriage. To be a faithful companion. The closest friend. Secondly, another way to submit and respect would be to encourage him. Husbands as leaders need encouragement in their role. They have a tough position, a lot of things to think about. They need, they need strength. They, they know that they fail sometimes. So they need encouragement and compliments and words of affirmation often. On the contrary, we see in the Proverbs, uh, Proverbs often talks about this nagging or criticizing wife and some of these pictures are quite humorous proverbs 27 verse 15 says an endless dripping on a rainy day and a nagging wife are alike it's like something something like chinese water torture to live with that kind of person it goes both ways obviously someone always nagging you always criticizing you and so a wife is not to be given to that just as you could be a grief to governing officials if you're constantly in a state of angry protest. Or those of us who have kids, we know how potentially irritating it is when our kids won't stop asking for the same thing over and over and over and over again, right? <laughs> you don't want to do that in a marriage relationship. And if you are always criticizing him, rather than encouraging him, he will not be able to lead with joy. There is, of course... And Martha Peace details this a bit in her book, a way to make a biblical appeal and give a biblical rebuke with a sweet and gentle and loving attitude. But to nag constantly and berate is not in accord with the kind of submission we see here. Third thing here is to fulfill your duties to him and your children and your home. Young wives especially 
are encouraged in Scripture to love their husbands and children, to be workers at home, diligent in those things, raising their children and managing their households and so on. Titus chapter 2, 4-5 speaks of this. 1 Timothy 5.14 says the same kind of thing. These are the duties that are common to wives. And you can show your submission by taking on those duties with faithfulness and diligence. Trying to do them well and excellently. Obviously, there's times when things get out of hand and children are tornadoes or the dryer breaks down or you're sick or impaired and you can't get to those things, and, and that is totally fine. The husband needs understanding and patience and love in those times, and even also ought to help lighten the load of those things. I'm a firm believer that husbands should do dishes and uh, change diapers and do some laundry, though I don't do that perfectly. You think of the excellent wife in Proverbs 31. 31 verse 27 says, She looks well to the ways of her household, and does not eat the bread of idleness. You see that throughout this passage, this, this lady that takes care of her children, her husband, props them up and, and earns their praise. That's, that's a great chapter to study and have in your mind. Although I will give the precaution that that passage is speaking about the wife par excellence, right? That this is the world champion woman, okay? Now, if I look to a world champion weightlifter um, and I thought I have to attain to that standard in order to be a man, I would be wrong, okay? I'm never going to attain that standard, especially a guy with my stature, but it is something to aim towards that kind of strength. That kind of womanhood in Proverbs 31 is something to strive for and put into practice. The fourth thing I have here is trusting your husband and following his lead. Really submitting to your husband's headship will mean following his lead and responding with trust. If you're constantly worried and anxious about his leading or questioning the way he's leading you without good reason, this is very discouraging. It's like driving with a backseat driver, right? Like, oh, did you miss a turn? I think you've you should have gone that way. Take a left here. Oh, we're going to be late. I need to add here that trusting your husband will require trusting God because your husband is imperfect and he doesn't always make the best decisions. But believing in a sovereign God who controls all things and is working out everything for your good and ultimately is the one providing for all your basic needs, you can trust in God as you trust and follow your husband. That will put your mind in a state of peace. And you can also biblically help him to lead and guide as you give him your wise counsel. Fifth here is conversing with your husband and even disagreeing with him in a respectful way. Marriage ought to be full of communication. Talking things out, getting each other's perspective, sharing wisdom and opinions and goals and ideas and trying to make a united effort at things. That is our goal, ultimately. We, we are one flesh. We're not one flesh dragging along another flesh. We are one united flesh. And so as much as possible, we work towards agreement. And that requires humility on both sides. And when you do disagree, you can disagree in a gracious way, 
As Proverbs 16.21 says, sweetness of speech increases persuasiveness. And as James 1 reminds us, always in conversation, we are to be quick to hear, slow to speak, and slow to anger. We're not to be contentious and quarrelsome. Proverbs 21.9 says, again, sort of humorously, this, this uh, caricature of this quarrelsome wife. He says, it is better to live in the corner of the housetop than in a house shared with a quarrelsome wife. There are some couples that get that way. They, they disagree. They, they, they are so quarrelsome with one another. Of course, it takes two to tango. They become so alienated because one or both of them are so difficult to deal with. And, and, and these sorts of disrespectful conversations can happen both in private and in public. You're always arguing and disagreeing with your husband, not listening to him but only trying to get your own opinion across. That's quarrelsomeness. Getting angry in conversation. But especially disagreeing with him in public is another level of disrespect. Martha Peace notes this, correcting, interrupting, or talking for your husband when in public. This really does a double injury because you're not just disrespecting him personally, but you're also robbing him of respect in the eyes of others and putting him to open shame. Now, this doesn't mean you can't, again, ever disagree with your husband because that's part of normal conversation and helping your husband as the suitable helper to, to come to the right conclusions, not confusions, and lead better. But there is a gentle, gracious manner in which to do it and a time and place. The last thing here I want to say is not letting any usurp his authority. Sometimes in family life, children or the in-laws can become more of an authoritative influence than the husband who ought to be the head. The extended family, of course, is not your head, though their thoughts and feelings and needs matter for sure. The Bible has things to say about that. You would be unwise to not consider those things. But when a man leaves his father and mother and cleaves to his wife, a new family unit is created, and the husband is now the head. And the children that you bear are not the head either. You can't let your children rule the household with their desires against your husband's. Instead, you are to defend your husband's leadership and stand by it. And you're also to teach your children to obey him and respect him as you do giving biblical discipline when they are rebellious and disrespectful towards him. Make sure that you spend time with your husband, enjoying him, loving him, learning with him. Don't let any other relationship get in the way of that important relationship. Now, a couple questions might come out at this point as we conclude the section on wives. What if your husband is not leading you at all? What if he's not acting as the head in any way? Well, I'd say this. Pray for him, mostly. Pray lots for him. Be patient with him. Wait on the Lord to give him that grace to change his heart. And do what you need to do while still being respectful and trying not to cross boundaries. And if he is a Christian, of course, you can biblically and graciously rep reprove him. 
and appeal to him to act as the head, to actually take up his biblical duty, as we see here in this passage, while also making sure that it doesn't turn into nagging. And of course, encourage him and compliment him when he does lead you. Another question might be, what if he is in unrepentant sin? Any kind of sin after biblically rebuking him between you and him alone, what if he doesn't respond to any of those reproofs? Maybe he's a professing Christian, but he's living in unrepentant sin. Well, does submission mean that you just don't bring it up, that you're quiet about it? No, as Matthew 18 tells us, if a brother sins, we are to go to him and reprove him. And then if that doesn't work, you are to take another along. You ought to go to another Christian, probably in this case an elder in the church, because church discipline and the purity of the church is still important to apply even when you want to be submissive to your husband. Submission does not mean sweeping sin under the rug. In this case, you are being submissive to God above men. And so I hope some of those thoughts are helpful and perhaps uh, you can be Bereans and look into these things as well and we can converse about it over lunch. But I want to switch gears now and just for the last bit, give some exhortations to husbands as well relating to the submission of their wives. We're not going into the commands of Ephesians 5 here necessarily, but these will be exhortations related to this topic. And I will say exhortations, again, like this, just like the previous section, they're, they're sometimes hard to hear because of our sinfulness that's remaining. But know that I'm preaching to myself here as well. And these are all given in a context of much grace. Well, first of all, first exhortation is that husbands, you need to model submission for your wives. You need to be an example of a submissive attitude. We need to be under authority to be in authority. We need to be led in order to lead. 1 Corinthians 11.3 says that the head of every man is Christ. We need to first of all as men submit ourselves totally to Jesus Christ in order for a Christian marriage to work. There is a Lord of Lords, a husband of husbands if you will. Every man must come to Christ as Lord and Savior and yield complete obedience to him. And it is as a man comes to faith in Christ and begins to follow Christ that he can learn to be the head that God wants him to be. You also must model submission to other authorities. There are many commands in Scripture relating to these various authorities in society, read of them in Romans 13, in 1 Peter 2 and 3, and so on. There are many authorities that we as husbands, as men, have in life. And if you are constantly raging about the government, or grumbling against church leaders, or mad at your boss, showing no submission or respect, how do you expect your wife then to respect and submit to you? But if you model that kind of obedient, submissive, respectful attitude in other areas of your life, that will be a model to her that she can then employ. And how, how much 
greater will she be able to submit to a submissive person. Second exhortation is, husbands, be respectable. Be respectable. Yes, wives are commanded to respect their husbands. But you can't demand or expect respect if you are completely unrespectable. Of course, even in that case, wives ought to respect their husbands for his position, even if there's not much to respect in his person. But men, you need to take responsibility to be respectable. In 1 Timothy 3 verse 2, this is one of the qualifications of a a mature elder in the church, to be respectable. And so what are some ways in which you can be a respectable man? Well, you can be, first of all, a strong leader. Not being weak spiritually, emotionally, intellectually, or even physically. Your wife undoubtedly wants a strong leader. There's a reason why we have the cliché, why we have novels written about knights in shining armor. If there are dragons around, women want knights with strong armor and big swords who can courageously fight off dragons. And there are dragons in life. We need to be strong as men to face the world, spiritually strong, growing in grace, in our biblical convictions, and vitally living out the faith with zeal, fighting sin, protecting our families from temptation and lies. We need to be strong emotionally, not being fearful and anxious, not being overly sensitive or a crybaby, you know, but being resilient and courageous and staying joyful and encouraged. Physically and intellectually, we ought to keep healthy and strong. We ought to grow in strength so that we can be faithful protectors, providers, and leaders and guides. So be a strong leader to be respectable to your wife. Also, be a loving leader. Of course, we will go into this more when we speak on this next time, that husbands are to love their wives. That's the main command we have in Scripture for husbands. We ought to love our wives by taking sacrificial responsibility to love by our admiration and affection and self-giving action towards our wives, to love them emotionally, spiritually, intellectually, physically, to love by nourishing and cherishing and leveraging our leadership for her good and her benefit. Who doesn't want to submit to a loving leader? Think of a government that actually cares about their citizens and listens to them. And gives them their rights and doesn't tax them too much. We like that. We can submit to that. So also a wife will gladly yield submission when her husband shows great love in the way that he leads. This is a way to be respectable. The third thing is to be diligent, not lazy. If, if a husband is lazy, even in the home... If all he does is play video games and watch TV or sit on his couch looking at his phone while she does all the work, how respectable is he to her? Sometimes, yes, men need rest after a long day, especially if their work is very physical, if it's long hours. Sometimes men need mental rest if they have that kind of work too. I come home sometimes, uh, my mind 
still on scriptural things and, and teaching and, and the different things that I have to do. Um, I come in kind of spaced out sometimes and Janelle's like, Rory, where are you? Um, one time Janelle left the kitchen table for a minute to go to the washroom and I was looking down at the table <laughs> just thinking and uh, she comes out and May has a steak knife in her hand and the dog is up on the table eating her plate of food and she said, <laughs> what is going on here? Well, sometimes men are exhausted when coming home and so wives have to have some understanding. But generally, that is not good, right? We want to be present men. We want to be men who come home, driving into the driveway, saying, Lord, help me. Help me when I go in there to serve my wife. Help me to see the needs that are there and help me to serve at home diligently. We ought to be diligent men, not lazy men. And when we are tired, we ask God for strength in and out of the home. And when a wife sees your hard work, that engenders more respect. Sloppy, lazy, sluggish men do not earn much respect from their wives. Now, after all those commands and, and practical things, just winding this up, guys, I want to give you one more point. That is, remember God's grace in your fumbling obedience. Remember God's grace in your fumbling obedience. If you're like me, examining this subject, you see a lot of areas where you can improve. And perhaps some where you have totally fallen on your face or neglected these things. First of all, look to God's grace in your struggle. We know from Ephesians chapter 2, we are saved by grace through faith in Christ alone, not by our good works we have obtained a righteous standing before God by the precious blood of Christ that he shed for us as our savior, as, as the bridegroom of the church. And so we stand cleansed in him. And there is present forgiveness when we fail. As 1 John 2, verse 1 to 2 says, My little children, I'm writing these things to you so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. He is the propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. Now, that doesn't mean we keep on sinning that God's grace may abound, but we receive God's grace in our sins, and we endeavor by God's grace to sin no more. And when our endeavor fails, we go back to the cross again. But over time, by God's grace, we grow so that we can say with John Newton, I am not what I ought to be. I am not what I want to be. I am not what I hope to be in another world. But still, I am not what I once used to be. And by the grace of God, I am what I am. So husbands and wives, remember that. Remember God's grace when you fail. And secondly and lastly, be gracious to one another. Remember that your spouse is a sinner too. There's a title of a book on marriage called When Sinners Say I Do. That's what marriage is. Two sinners pledging their lives to each other, trying to be faithful in all these things that scripture commands. But if your spouse is a sinner who has yet to be saved by grace, then you ought to be all the more gracious to them. If they are a sinner saved by grace, 
then you're still to be gracious to them. Give the same grace that you have received from God. Be patient, long-suffering, letting love cover a multitude of sins. Don't let yourself get bitter when your spouse sins against you. It will happen. Talk it out and keep short accounts. Be willing to forgive and ask for forgiveness. And men here especially, as we talk about submission, men be gracious to your wife as she tries to submit to your headship. You know how hard it is to submit to authorities in this life. You know how hard it is even to submit to Christ, who is a perfect head and savior. How much harder is it for wives to submit to sinful, weak, flawed, goofy guys like us? And when she does submit to you, doesn't that make you marvel, brothers? We're not worthy of submission on our best of days. How amazing and wonderful is the grace of God in a wife's heart to give her the ability to submit to you. That's a greater miracle than God stopping the sun in the sky or creating the world ex nihilo out of, out of nothing. So be gracious as she struggles to submit to you and help you. And wives, be gracious as your husband struggles to lead with love. You know how selfish your own heart can be, yet God is gracious to you. And husbands and wives, remember, you didn't marry a perfect man or woman, but you do have a perfect Savior to lead you both. Let's pray. God, we thank you for these truths from Scripture. God, and I pray that you would lodge them deeper into our hearts, that we would remind ourselves often of these things. Lord, that we would have husbands and wives that glorify you in this church, and even those young people would grow into the kinds of people who can be excellent husbands and wives. And we pray all this for Jesus' sake. Amen.